Welcome to episode 10 of the Mercenary Podcast. Today we talk with rocket scientist Paul Giolano, and we cover a number of topics, including how our satellites stay safe, interstellar travel, and jet propulsion. All right, cool. Welcome to episode, I think, 10 of the Mercenary Podcast. I'm yes. here with Matt Monahan. Uh, yeah, here uh, with Matt Monahan, and today we're joined by Paul Giolano, who is a satellite engineer at Boeing uh, in El Segundo, outside All Los right. Angeles, California. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Yeah, and how do you say your last name? Because I'm looking at the spelling. It looks like <laughs> Ju- oh, okay. Giul- Giuliano. Giuliano. Okay. Okay. It's kind of like uh, like uh, Rudy Giuliani. Got right? it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. There we go. <laughs> um, and I think uh, we met uh, through a mutual friend of uh, Matt and I, another Matt named Matt Menyo, when he was doing a thing right. at Princeton. Uh, I guess probably like six or seven years ago at this point. Yeah, um, that was uh, 2007. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, what were you? What were you doing? He was doing some summer thing at Princeton. You were doing. Were you, were you there full time, or were you doing the same program? No, I was in the same program. Uh, kind of a summer research fellowship. Um, I let's see. I was working in a really cool underground plasma lab they have there, where they work on these plasma propulsion devices. And uh, I basically had a thruster to myself. Um, I was working with a grad student. We were researching the ways that these thrusters, these advanced thrusters, um, they actually, it, it, some crazy physics involved. They, they create, you know, like less thrust than like a bottle of water. But when you apply them in space and there's no drag, right, uh, you can get going faster than any, any big, powerful, loud rocket would ever take you. Right, um, but the problem with some of these thrusters is when you start pumping up the juice, right, and putting energy into them, they start eating themselves and uh, using themselves as propellant. So we were researching that process of at what point does it start getting destructive, and because that starts getting in the way of actually using them. So it's cool stuff: high voltage, vacuum, space environment stuff. Very fun work. I, so. I feel like I feel like well, uh, our summer jobs, um, our summer <laughs> jobs that were breaks from college were like you know maybe caddying at the golf course uh, <laughs> or doing random stuff and 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 you had your own thruster so yeah. uh, um, so was, that was I, I forgive my uh, <laughs> my lack of, of knowledge around <laughs> thrusting technology but when you say it eats it itself what what does that mean so so that would be like uh, so typically in any type of rocket or thruster you have a propellant. Okay. okay, and so in 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 solid rockets or like what you might see on the space shuttle or the boosters where they're big and powerful, you know, you have a solid propellant, you light it, it starts a chemical reaction occurs, you have an exchange of force, and and it goes really fast. Um, in these plasma devices, you do it with electric fields and energy in a different way. You have propellant, like a gas you feed in, right? But if the physics aren't working out in your favor, you'll start actually eating the materials of the thruster and, like, wearing away at it so that it can... It's almost like it's starved for propellant, so it starts eating itself. It's like a thruster cannibalism, kind of, in a way, right? And wow. and, and that's really bad, right? Because you don't want something that's going to eat itself in space because you won't be able to really fix it. You want it to just use the gas you give it so it's a really interesting problem actually and it was kind of for this particular technology it was getting really popular like in the 70s everyone thought oh this is this is the type of thruster we're gonna we're gonna use to take 
humans to Mars and beyond. And, and then they, someone in a lab realized this, this kind of natural limit that occurs, and it, it kind of uh, screwed with everyone's plans. So still a good research uh, area, though. Very fun. So it seems like um, it's a kind of thing where it would just takes so long to get up to speed, right? Because it's such a it's such a minimal reaction. But by the time it's like if you have enough time for it to get going, it's actually efficient. But it still has a limit that that, that you were talking yeah. about. Yeah, if if you if you need to stay below that limit of energy, right? It would just take too long. It wouldn't be worth it, right? So it just never really took took speed. So they use similar devices like that in space, so on our satellites. Well, I was going to get to that. So you, so that's, that's sort of how I met. And then um, you, uh, you now. I think well, you, uh, you, you, well, you are a rocket scientist. We should get that out of the way. Uh, <laughs> if, if, it, if it has not been clearly apparent uh, so far. Um, so I think you, you got your doctorate at Ann Arbor before coming out here. I, for, I forget exactly. Where, yes. What's, um, yeah, University of Michigan. Um, right. In the uh, within the domain of of aerospace, so applied to this type of propulsion. Uh, but really, you know, kind of a, a pure plasma physics kind of sense, really researching the, the, the fundamental physics of ions and electrons in these devices. But, but really the overall element that, that I've always kind of stuck with is the propulsion element because it's just, it's just like really cool, right? Like when you can look at, you know, you, I, I, there was this one grad student um, in our building. He had, he had taped to his door. It was one of like the battleships in, uh, in Star Wars, but it was like the back, it was like the aft end, right? So you could see the big, you know, the big thrusters that are on the back and then a little arrow pointing to that and then some text at the end saying, like, this is what I do. What do you work on? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, how everything is harder in space, which is kind of a natural, um, you know, t- I guess tell Matt and also tell our listeners, I know a good bit, but sort of what you do now is basically seems like troubleshooting problems for satellites in space so is, is that pretty accurate yeah yeah that's that's a good way to put it you know plasma physics um and and let me specify too that when i when i say plasma it's plasma is like a gas it's, it's kind of like the fourth state of matter in a way right where mm-hmm. you have you have a, a gaseous um a gaseous material but you've kind of taken the electrons with the negative charge and the and the ions with a positive charge and you've separated them out and when you do that, you create electric and magnetic fields, and it just gets crazy. The physics go crazy, right? But, but this is what you find in space. This is what, like, the sun is made up of and what it's spewing out at us every day, every second. And this is what stars are you know, made up of an interstellar medium. So in space, you want to put something out there. The customer comes to us and says, we want to broadcast uh, 200 channels of high-def television to North America. Uh, and we want to do it with a satellite, and we want it to work in space for 20 straight years, and we don't want to have to deal with it, and we want it to just work. And we're like, okay, cool. Uh, so we have to go and we have to understand the environment and design these these devices, these spacecraft that are just crazy and can survive in space in all the plasma environments with all the electrons bombarding it and all of the, I don't know, you know, sometimes you get a coronal mass ejection and the sun just starts bombarding. I, I hate those. I <laughs> yeah, hate what that ruins Matt's week a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Coronal mass ejections are. Uh, are pretty is, that, is that like a solar flare or what? Yeah, what is, is, solar, yeah, like a solar flare kind of thing. It's like a it's like a little hole kind of opens up, right, in the sun and just spews an extra an extra dense dose of stuff. 
out. No, that'll, that'll just ruin your week. It, it just it just ruins it. And there's there's even these situations where where when we're when we as engineers and scientists are trying to design for these things, we have to take into account the worst case, right? And so there's like this one situation where you know you have the sun and then the earth and then your satellite is like eclipsed. Okay, so it's like you have them all in a row. Okay, and so there's one situation that we'll design for, which is you have this horrible situation. Everything goes wrong. The sun has a solar flare. This really dense bit of plasma and, and goop is coming towards the Earth. It hits the Earth's magnetic fields, right, which kind of like wraps around the Earth, and then it has a tail, right? The magnetic field actually kind of has a tail, and it, and it kind of turns around and then slaps behind the Earth right where your satellite is, right? Almost like you're taking a towel, like a wet towel, and just cracking it right on your satellite, right? And so we have to, we have to account for stuff like that because that can just fry electronics on your satellite if you're not careful. Oh it's, man, <laughs> this 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 sounds like because all right. So Matt and I talk about launching software, and well, we talk about in the film industry the hell that there's like an immediacy and how everything is for like you're always in in like crunch time mode and all that kind of stuff. And Matt talks about how they soft release software and there's always things to fix and there. And, and, but it seems like for what you do, Paul, it's like there's there's so little room for error that everything has to be. Because you're not going to send somebody up in space to fix something, so everything has to be almost completely accurate, as you said, for 20 years. Um, how do you how do you really plan for that kind of stuff, and how yeah. effective are you? Like, is how, it, it, like how much of it is done in the lab versus how much it, of it is just learning from the mistakes of the Russians? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so we're it's a factory, right? So so we we are. You know, it's actually a lot of the very same stuff that you deal with in any project or program management setting, right? You have quality, you have testing, you have kind of iterative development and milestones along the way, right? And you need to kind of, uh, you need to account for that. Um, It's just that we have so many different components that it really relies on this like kind of deep understanding that we've learned since the first, you know, the first satellite, first communication satellite launched in 1962 and we've basically just been learning since then right because it's kind of a string of successes yes and and we we learn every year but there's always new stuff because technology always advances um everyone always wants more bandwidth right more bandwidth more power more channels more media right and that just means you got to up the power and up the power and we keep getting into these new these new thresholds of you know introducing new physics into the environment um, so, so we we try to capture that with you know, uh, there's this there's this combination. There's a fine line between having smart people and like good processes, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. it, if you it, if you're a slave to your processes, you'll never uh, you'll never have the critical thinking you need in order to solve some of these problems as they come up. But if you have no processes and only smart people, it's it can just you'll be in paralysis, right? Because you want to over optimize and make things perfect. And you're not thinking. You don't have anyone there to think of like kind of the big picture, right? You'll lose that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's actually it's very similar. It's just that we kind of take it and we turn up the gain a little bit, right? And we just, <laughs> just we just the stakes the stakes are raised. Exactly. You know, <laughs> we try to keep it cleaner. We try to control everything. We try to control the environments. You know, we we just um, we're very explicit in our uh, in our the flow of how everything is built, right? Maybe some people might come to our industry and and see that we have like almost too many milestones, but we really need them 
because they're very complicated systems and you know so, you got you got to get there so with this like um this like solar flare towel whipping how would you <laughs> how did you find out about that or like is that something that's all, it's just been known for a while that you just have to watch out for or did you guys like have a you know an experience where you're like oh we didn't see that coming yeah, you know, um, I believe that was discovered. Uh, there's over the years, there's been weather, basically weather and sensor satellites that have been flown both by uh, United States and, and European um, uh, institutions, organizations. Sometimes they're governmental programs, right? And they, you know, what, whereas we might be making a telecommunications satellite, you might have a satellite whose pure function is to like sense the environment, right? And okay. because that's because really it's really valuable information, right? So, so I believe what happened was they, they had kind of a fleet of satellites out there and um, they were just collecting data and compiling it and then they were able to correlate. You know, they were able to correlate something that some astronomers saw with sun activity to what the satellites were seeing and, and then being like, oh, crap, like this is, you know. I, I'm, sure, um, I'm sure there were some failures in there too. You know, you're, a lot of times you learn most when something fails, Right, unfortunately, right. Mm-hmm. So something probably blew up up there, and they were like, "What happened?" After you know, after a year of studying, then they finally get it. So they learn it for the next time. Wow. You try you try not to do that. You try to you try to be ahead of it, right? But sometimes it's just things move too fast. So. And you've never worked for like a governmental organization, right? Because I, I imagine it's a little bit different in the field where you know you work for for Boeing, and, and they have. You know, it's like it's more if cable goes down, people are not happy or it's um, it's I'm sure the process is a little bit different working for, um, you know, a governmental organization uh, versus a a corporation in in that respect in terms of, you know, timeline and goals and everything. Um, But, uh, yeah, it seems it's it just seems like the whole planning aspect. It's just insane. Like once you once you get something up there, I imagine from, you know, it's like. Uh, do you guys have a map of all like the space debris? I just think about it, it just reminds me of like people who are exploring and like and diving or something in the early oh. days of diving when it's like do you have a map of like this shipwreck or like this old Russian satellite or this Chinese satellite? Do you know where stuff is? Yeah, I believe NORAD tracks that actually. They have a series of these antenna arrays and I think they have like a live feed of all of the you know, at least public debris that you can find all the way down to, I think I read somewhere, maybe a tennis ball, maybe a golf ball uh, wow, in, wow. in low earth orbit. Yeah. So, so they, so whenever something shows up, they, they have a pretty good idea. Um, and then there's actually a pretty good, there's actually a pretty good community of like amateur uh, uh, observers that try to track low earth things. Right. So like when China sends up something and tries to blow up one of its satellites as like a, a display of power for their anti-satellite stuff, and they create a mess of objects up there. You know, people are watching. Wait, and does, they, that, and you, does that actually happen? That's not oh, just, like, the plot of gravity? No. No, <laughs> uh, no that was actually, like, I think, was it last year? I have to, I'd have to check headlines. There was, there was some issue where a country uh, tested, like, an anti-satellite device on their own satellite, right? Uh, and, and that's, I mean, it just, and on top of, not only just, just, uh, doing it like that, but there was a uh, there was a satellite collision uh, in 2012, I think, where you actually had two satellites that uh, collided, uh, two Iridium satellites, which was like kind of the early satellite sat phone 
technology, they actually collided and caused like a little, a little, you know, poof, like puff of debris. So is it every time that Gmail goes down, is that because something like that happened? Or no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, 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 no. Um, it, it, there's sort of is there sort of a like a not in my backyard kind of thing with space with different countries where is there like you know like, like you said if, if China tested the anti-satellite thing but suddenly there's all this other crap that was created you know I guess there's really nothing you can do about it right I mean it's yeah. just sort of yeah I, I, I'd have to double check to see what the rules are because <laughs> space space is kind of like like everyone kind of own everyone kind of works together in these organizations that are similar to like a like a NATO for space right and and there are there are ways to do things like that probably that aren't acts of war you know but but you, it's it's a pretty fine line like you can't just start like shooting you know up there and if you miss like what happens right so, uh, so it's, where does that put like SpaceX and like Elon Musk in in this whole thing is like he's doing all the right now it seems like I don't think he's launched any like truly private uh, missions, and like everything is a government contract. But like, there's going to be like companies like his, Planetary Resources, that's they're shooting off into asteroids. Yeah. Like, is there? Do people start talking about that now? Like, what's going to happen when? Like, what? what, what it's are not the just government kind of thing. Or yeah. Well, yeah, you know, they're not. Well, up until recently, they're not looking as much to put things in orbit permanently. Right, so you can you can get the regulations and you can launch things, right? Um, as long as you kind of you have a launch site and you clear it with the FAA and, and you go through all those loops. Um, but actually, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that. So so SpaceX just announced the launch of their of their satellite business, right? Um, also the same week that that Virgin uh, Galactic and I think it's Virgin Galactic, one of the Virgin branches, yeah. teamed up with another. Um, another company to launch kind of a low earth fleet of satellites where they're with an aim to provide uh, space internet basically right. right and so now we're talking into okay when you're putting something in orbit whether it's like kind of geo geosynchronous orbit really far out like a telecommunication satellite typically is or in low earth orbit where it moves fast and you have like a lot of satellites you have you start talking about okay do you own the frequency bands to to communicate in there are you going to find a loophole and and operate in a band that's like free but crowded um, do you are you going to hit anything right have you done the analysis to see if there's like orbital debris around where you're looking um, so yeah a lot of questions start popping up once you start talking about parking things in orbit so huh. yeah what do you think overall of um uh spacex or what do you think of a lot of the companies that are trying to operate in that space oh i love the idea i mean i i love the effort um the the privatization of space is a major step in the right direction for just diverse um healthy space business Right? Um, have you guys ever seen or heard of the documentary Orphans of Apollo? No. So there was a there was a private company that bought the Mir space station. Okay. Like, did you guys know that when the Mir space station, you know, re-entered in the orbit, it was actually owned by a private company who had private astronauts. They flew like a like a Pizza Hut flag, I think. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. So, no, no, so I, I, that was like in two thousand like three or something that it was decommissioned and, and crashed into the ocean, right? Yeah, yeah, but it was actually sold by the Russians to a like billionaire, you know, telecom guy who with this this company that he started, right, to be the first private space enterprise. 
Um, and and so they hired astronauts. They they sent an astronaut or two up there. They like they did some things as a private space enterprise, and NASA hated it. They just like shot them down, right? And they they would they would try to squelch it. They wanted like NASA should be owning all the space uh, uh, systems and and all of the the logistics and all of that. And so what happened was the reason why it burned up was because they needed this thing called a space tether, okay? And the space tether is like this electromagnetic device you put on something that's in orbit like that, and it uses the magnetic fields to kind of tug on the the vehicle and like keep it up in orbit. Okay, so they needed to send it from the United States to Russia so that it could be launched up. And the Department of State kept denying the request, denying the request, right? Um, until finally, the day that the Mir space station burnt up, it was approved. Wow. Right. And so there was there was a very anti-privatization of space uh, culture for a while, right? Because that was really like our measure of power right like like you mentioned earlier you know it's like it was us and the russians for so long right um you know that was kind of we needed to hold on to that but uh but but just even in the past decade the paradigm has just totally shifted where people are really seeing the value in this uh kind of diversification of the market and so i mean i'm just so excited just to see what we do with with from capturing asteroids to going to mars to even that one where they're like trying to film that, that I think it's a Russian company trying to film that reality TV show of that trip to Mars. <laughs> I have heard of that. It's, yeah. just, it's, it's obviously going to end in disaster, but I, but I it's, feel as though you know. I, I almost feel like that can't be real. But it's it's like a it's a Russian outfit that they want you to what you apply, you get on a, a, a ship, you go to Mars. You're like you're never coming back, but they're just gonna. It's all right. free as long as they can film a, a reality TV show. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Of you losing your goddamn mind on Mars. <laughs> but no, I was going to say, you know, there have been a few failures, obviously, recently. But I guess given, you know, for some of the private companies. But do you see that as just part of the learning curve and it's just a necessary step? Or do you see that as an actual threat? I mean, obviously, I know you're a big fan of, of sort of the free market of space, as it were. Yeah, it, it, it's a natural step for uh, to control, right? Um, you know, it's very difficult to sell the message of space um, uh, when, when like, your message it, – it's, it's difficult to create, like, a private enterprise for something that has a payoff of, like, 10 to 20 or maybe, like, 50 years. Yeah. Right? And, and also when, like, your, uh, your, your business case is, oh, well, it's to save humanity in case an asteroid's ever going to destroy everything. You're like, Really? But that's actually a lot of times when you're talking about uh, space-related, you know, kind of long-term futuristic um, uh, endeavors, you're talking about uh, moving humans from Earth, populating other, you know, other planets, right? Like what if we ever run out of resources and we have 300 years to figure something out, right? That's actually a case that you would typically see in like a sci-fi setting, but it's hard for us to grasp that in reality because we're – you know, none of us are actually probably going to see the entire effort from beginning to end. Well, it's sort of like the spoiler alert. You know, I know we've all seen Interstellar, but that was exactly the reason why, uh, you know, Michael Caine's character lies to him that there's a exactly. chance that he could save his kids because, uh, you know, it's like if, if people it's like why why, you know, people are lied to to 
not to get too conspiracy, but just like why people are lied to to keep working on things is because the, the the level of detachment between the different generations like can't be there. Like you know, I don't know if there's been a case study of us working on something to save our obviously there hasn't been something of to save our species over like three or four generations. You know that right. sort of you know. You know. I guess that that kind of brings up the idea of like why bother with space, which has been <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like everyone got really psyched about it in the 60s and like the 70s, and then everyone just kind of like forgot about it, and and like now Neil deGrasse Tyson has been like a big force of just of trying to like bring back this like sense of wonder about space and like and and kind of like try to frame it as like it's our it's our it's our destiny to like yeah it's like manifest destiny it was. Yeah. It was- well, well I also, I like, there's up... no microwaves. There's no TVs or microwaves or whatever without trying to go to space. There's also a cumulative effect of that, uh, too. Yeah, yeah, there's the other argument where yeah. it's just like yeah. our pursuit of these things gives us lots of stuff that you can use in your daily life today. But I wanted to point out, like, in I think it was in 2014 was, like, the greatest uh, number of possibly inhabitable planets ever discovered, like, by a long shot. Wow, really? I think That's, so. Yeah, I, you know, I... They've been really doing. Uh, wasn't like just last week they discovered they discovered something that was like an exact copy of Earth. Like it fell in that Goldilocks kind of range, and yeah, it's there's just it's just really advancing at a great speed. It's it's subtle, right? Compared to other things, we we very we're very short sighted short sighted, and we will look and we say like we'll look at phones how they've advanced, right? And look at you look at technology and personal personal technology. But uh, it's hard. It's hard to look at that, like the space um, programs over the years, and say the same thing, right? We've been using such old technology for so long, just because it's so difficult to work with, and there's human life involved. Right. We right? haven't because we haven't gone to Mars. I think it's all these yeah. tactile, tangible steps of exactly because we haven't gone somewhere or sent people. Whereas, you know, in effect. You know the Voyager missions and and sending stuff and sending probes and and having, you know, being able to to understand more of the universe and our galaxy and our solar system is is, is obviously a huge step forward. I think until there's someone with a with a, an American flag on on dusty Mars, I feel like people are sort of not going to pay attention. But I mean, are you optimistic with what you've seen recently? Uh, it sounds like you are. Versus because you can kind of look past what maybe the normal person would see as why are we doing this? Yeah, I, I am optimistic. I, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic with the technology. Um, I think I'm optimistic with kind of the socioeconomic aspects of it too, which you can't forget about, right? Um, you have to assume that there's not going to be some crazy crash or major, I don't know, major events that's that's going to just completely upset all of this. Um, it. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm optimistic. I, I think I've told, I've told people that that I believe that in in my lifetime, and I know that I think we're we're all about the same age. Um, that we will see um, a like the beginnings of a presence, a, like a, a permanent presence of humans on Mars. That's my right. call. Like you know, I I think there's going to be by the time that the end of this, you know, twenty twenty one hundreds, you know, we will have a camp. On Mars, yeah, that's my I, fault. I always just wonder, like maybe I'm not. I always consider myself part of like the early majority of the uh, the, the curve of uh, like from like bleeding edge people to the like the laggard people. Like I, I think about the people that want to 
have the first settlement on Mars, and I'm just like, good luck. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> yeah. it sounds so terrible. Like it, it sounds like it's the space version of Oregon Trail. You know, like <clears throat> yeah. people are gonna you're gonna run out of food, run out of water. Like someone's <laughs> gonna die of like yellow fever. Like it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty bad. I mean, think, dysentery it, is on Mars. Yes, yeah, Mars dysentery. It's gonna wipe out everybody. Martian dysentery. <laughs> yeah, awful. when they put like a Five Guys burger place on Mars, <laughs> that's I'll book my ticket. <laughs> that it's real. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you say but do you say by the end of. Uh, the 2100s of the 21st century. I mean, it doesn't. I feel like if we if we all needed to, and this gets back to I guess cooperation. I feel like if we all needed to, do you think we could go there? You think we could have that up and running sooner, like in the next 10 to 15 years? Or what are the what are the socioeconomic uh, limitations of of space sort of travel? You know. Yeah. Is it, yeah. You know, there are some there are, there are things we have to overcome in the industry regarding um, uh, just there's this uh, the name is escaping me. There's like this law of, of like aerospace uh, acquisition, like cost. Right. Where it's like basically the cost of 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 making large aerospace projects and programs is outweighing the pace of technology increase. And so there's some major issues in the in the industry that we have to overcome regarding schedule and cost and risk. Um, we keep factoring in there's there's you look at the original like Mercury satellite, uh, the Mercury uh, astronauts, and those guys had like a 50 percent chance of dying on top of those rockets. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and we will and we'll never go go there again. It's We will never get to that point again because our understanding of well, it's like. Our understanding of the implications of that is different. We we value human life. We realize that, like in a different in a different sort of context. Um, so so those that's where kind of the socioeconomic aspects need to develop a little bit. Um, well, though I think I think, I think uh, there's there's also the, the the case where with the privatization of space, you see people that are just crazy enough that value the like the data that they're getting over their own life. So they're yeah. the person that will be like, you know what, I'm gonna. I'm going to take this rocket and I'm going to go straight into the sun. But you're going to learn so much from from that uh, from that mission that I go on. But I'm definitely going to die. Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's a major milestone. Like human <laughs> sacrifice, right? I mean, it's yeah. It, it, it's difficult for for ultimately like government organizations to overcome. Like the the human sac the, the voluntary human sacrifice. I mean, we do it with yeah, people will will join like military you know in a military setting but but that's something that the general public is i'm not sure if we're right prepared to make those decisions well we have before though like if you look at a movie like the right stuff and you you sort of brought up some right. of those early missions i mean the nature of i think the, the the mercury missions obviously had a were a much higher fatality chance but you know there's always been the, the nature of test pilots doing sure. stuff and breaking different i mean there's still there still are right and there still are people flying or they unmanned those those like x16 you know going 12,000 miles an hour like do we do we still have test pilots yeah that's that's a good point um I, we we do as far as, as far as i'm as far as i know um that that's that's a really good point um you know, it's uh, well. I, I think of the the idea of like the the public, like for science kind of mentality. It's going to be really interesting when uh, those two the two astronaut brothers, the Kelly uh, uh, brothers, they might even be twins. I think they are are going to do that study where one's going to be in space, one's going to be on the Earth, and they're going to see like the detrimental effects of space environment on the 
space human. Oh, that's weird. Right? So, so, yeah. you, so, you, so it's like how long is the experiment? Um, I, I thought it was a year. It's probably not that long, but it might be. Um, it, it's it's Mark Kelly and his and his brother, and so uh, you know th- that idea of of taking that next step into like how does this affect our body or like will we die right like they we've ignored the fact that astronauts get eye cancer at a rate that's like way faster than a normal person right so like let's let's look at that and let's actually do an experiment with a willing human right and take that next step and learn a little bit about this what's all you have very small sample size right yeah how many people have really uh i mean only a few hundred people probably have ever been in uh out of out of orbit as it were right so um that's pretty interesting what do you it seems like, as Matt was saying, if they are discovering more habitable, you know, you, you mentioned the Goldilocks zone, which I uh, I remember being. It's like you know how we're between Venus and Mars, not too hot, not too cold, and exactly. not and not being pelted by too many asteroids, and you're in a stable, you know, uh, like it's not a galaxy or something that's just formed. Like there's not too much stuff going on. Um, I guess it's sort of what they were looking for in, in Interstellar, right? Is is a planet that is not uh, is a good place. Um, it just seems like those are. I mean, they're still massive light years away, right? So, um, you know, even ten light years away is is very far. But I think like this is the closest system, like four point one or something. Like, th- yeah, even that's a massive distance. Yeah, I <laughs> to, think that was the one they recently found, like four right. light years, maybe something like that. Yeah. So. You know, I, th- I think we'd say we felt where we can see things, and uh, uh, you know, we can see different places. But ultimately, going back to your thruster idea, um, will we get there in conventional ways, or are we going to have to go through the wormhole? Like, what is what is the prevailing thought for you, and for how you think the community thinks about this? I, I think the major paradigm shift is going to be. It's not going to be in like the 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 colonization of another of another nearby planet like Mars, right? It's really going to come down to uh, a new concept in, in propulsion systems. Okay, and and I always I one of my favorite sections or sessions at propulsion conferences is is the advanced concepts they usually have these advanced concepts sessions uh faster than light ftl they'll call them right um at some conferences they're usually kind of like at the end of like the tuesday everyone's already got their drink tickets right and everyone kind of goes into like the big uh big conference room and, and they have uh you know very very smart and very accomplished uh, scientists around the world working on these faster than light concepts, right? Um, one of my favorite would be, would be in, uh, you know, there's a key element in, um, in using antimatter for a propulsion system. Okay, so let's say we finally get over that shift where we can create a finite amount of, of antimatter. Okay, what you do is you take a large piece of matter, right, a large mass, and then an equivalent piece of antimatter, right, kind of like negative mass, and you put them next to each other, and you create like this gravity wave, right? And you you basically surf a gravity wave yeah. out, okay? Um, things like that are going to be the step that will then take us out there, right? Uh, there, we can start getting into there. there's probably going to be some sort of hibernation or, you know... Um, or uh, you know, I always think of like when we when we talk about there's that one person that pilots it where everyone sleeps. I think of the movie Pandorum. You guys seen Pandorum? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. I mean, like, I I don't like thinking of that just because that's a little creepy. <laughs> it also goes into human sacrifice a little bit. Um, uh, obviously, not talking in an occult way, but I'm saying in terms of the thought of you know, because I've, I've read a few scripts and there's a few sci-fi movies that uh, I've I've looked at or seen or been aware of um, where you know, like the classic thing is you have. 500 people in, in like cryo sleep or, or yeah. something. And then, you know, you have like seven or eight who pilot it at any one time. And then you, when someone dies, you wake somebody up and then you have, you know, you literally have four or 500 people there because even conventionally, how long would it take to get using conventional, not what we have now, but set like the next generation of something conventionally say you had unlimited fuel, it's still going to take what, four or 5,000 years to get to something yeah. easily. Like, it's like some 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 uh, absorbent amount of exorbitant amount of of time that that you could not just you know you tip you know, from unless you had like a perfect hibernation system right there would be some limit to what you could to what you could do there'd have to be like shifts you know uh, yeah it's it's just a, it's an extreme amount of time right and so there's a lot of steps that you have to take to get there um, this this kind of invokes one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, sci-fi stories is by Arthur C. Clarke, right? Like, but probably my favorite. One of the one of the big, you know, the big sci-fi names, right? Um, the Songs of Distant Earth. Okay, and in this story, what what they do is they they realize that the sun is about to the sun's going to supernova in like about three hundred years, four hundred years, right? So they have this this amount of time to basically get their shit together. There we go. Now we can use the explicit tag on your thing. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Um, get their shit together and, um, and, and colonize as many planets as possible, hoping that at least one or two will work, right? And they colonize them by sending out these, sh- these ships that basically have, you know, like the, uh, the embryos. Not even embryos. It's like the beginnings of life. And then these, like, mother robots that will gen- then kind of just, like, raise them up until they're self-sustained. Right, so there's not even an element of like a a, a team of people leaving, hibernating, and and, and going away. It, they had they all understood we're not going to live, right? So let's create us in the next phase. Send it out on a ship, like little seeds. Put it as many as possible, and then hopefully one will land. We'll kind of get humanity up and going again. We'll never know if it actually worked, and that'll be it. That's the story. Well, what what happens? Other stuff. You know, is it the kind of thing where? Because um, I love when space movies and, and movies set in space. Ultimately, human elements always come out. Where there's always people, there's always aggression. I find that people, I guess, in science fiction, always seem to have trouble fulfilling those promises of yeah, of yeah, um, it, which may just be human nature. But does it, that happen? It's, about, in the story? <laughs> it's it, yeah. It always it always comes down to the characters, right? And so in this particular story, in Songs of Distant Earth, what happens is that actually about fifty years, probably before the sun is going to supernova, they've been working at this thing for forever. They finally invent this propulsion system that can actually take them to about the speed of light, right? And so so what happens is this crew catches up with this planet that had been developing a new human civilization for probably about uh, like maybe 500 years right and so you have like the original humans that land on this planet of like the new wave of humans and that's where the that and that's we and you know this is where one of the underpinnings of bad sci-fi is that you don't have good characters right like you just you just don't care about the characters right they just they have all these problems and you just don't care 
right? But like what they, you know, and this is why Arthur C. Clarke was great. He understood the technology and people. And he, you know, there's this developing relationship between the new, ho- the, the new humans and the original humans, right? And the, it's sort of how in, in Brooklyn there's, there's the hipsters and then the people who lived there before. <laughs> And yes. there's massive it's conflict exactly between like that. <laughs> exactly. And they're, they're both the same species, but just not really the same. <laughs> Do you, well, you mentioned that you, you know, obviously you've done some science consulting for me, uh, science fiction wise. Um, and we talked about quantum entanglement a little bit. Uh, but what do you – I guess your favorite author is Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, I really like Philip K. Dick. I guess the, mm-hmm. between the two of them, uh, they really have all that covered. It seems as though um, a lot of – do you think a lot of what they sort of predicted um, – because Philip K. Dick also did – you know, he wrote um, uh, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but uh, not – I think I'm getting the title right, which is, is the inspiration for Blade Runner. And mm-hmm. also um, right. he wrote the short story that became uh, Minority Report. And I think then he also wrote, write the, the story or the, the book that eventually became Total Recall, right? Or he wrote, he, he wrote Total Recall, right? It, it was, it was, a, it was a, either a novella or a short story uh, titled, yeah. uh, We Will we'll Remember It For You Wholesale. That's, That's right. right. Yes. That's quite a track record. Yeah. yeah. I know, it's, right? <laughs> but it's but, but all those things, um, like what more is, are there any other prophecies? Because, you know, it's like Minority Report. Uh, I guess we don't have pre-crime, but I think not just what uh, those original texts inspire, but also the movies. You know, it's like I I love that you know basically the Apple touchscreen. All the people have been talking about it for years. Is kind of you know within six years of that movie, you have touchscreens everywhere, and you don't even have to use those gloves that people use in the movie. You know, it's like suddenly I love science fiction's ability to kind of inspire and and sort of create new technology. Is there anything in in those books that you think hasn't we haven't quite got there yet um you know that's i i love philip k dick for that exact reason that he's just freaking, sort of a loaded like, question I, well he, he, he he's just out there right and i find that actually the sci-fi writers who uh who are probably the most creative like they don't care too much about like the hard sci-fi right like the actual what are the actual technological you know underpinnings of of this concept sometimes those writers will predict more because they just they have no they're in they're inhibited uh that they're uninhibited right by trying to overthink things okay and so so like with philip k dick uh, one of my favorite philip k dick novel you know uh novels just to pick on him is the three stigmata of palmer eldritch okay a crazy book about uh, in the future society is kind of broken down most people are addicted to this uh, it's almost like a game in a way uh, in which you kind of you take this drug and you enter into this out of body experience where you're almost like playing with dolls, like playing with other things uh, the same way that um, that you might like someone now might be addicted to like video games or you have you or, have or this, Clash of Clans. It's a Clash of Clans, clans you know, clans, right. you, you just you, you you're just addicted with that with that kind of getting rid of your current situation and and going into your your video games your playstation if it's second life or you know one of those other uh uh you know just kind of removing yourself from your body and putting it somewhere else i I really like that because it, it kind of he really goes into the you know what actually happens when you have these people who just like really don't care anymore and it's in this really super advanced technological uh, uh, situation, right? This this environment, but no one cares. Because all they want, like, is their drug 
they want that they want to just like almost like mind melt it's like mind melding with the people they play with and they're completely oblivious to the fact that they're living on this other planet like in a hole somewhere and that they have these systems you can live on and these probably advanced technology um, yeah well that's like a um so what is it? The Fermi paradox is the, is the one where, um, like, if there's so if, if life if, if there's such a great chance of there being life out there, why haven't we found it? Uh, is that what that is? I, I think so. I don't know. I'm gonna look that up. <laughs> well, so there was someone that I, I heard that came up with a theory that everyone just eventually you get to a state of technological prowess that you just turn inward. And you create, you basically just create the matrix, and everyone just plugs themselves in, and they're just like, you know, what? we don't even need to go out and explore anything. We're all just plugged into this matrix where you can experience whatever the hell you want, uh, and and you're just you're just in there, and, and all you need is for the, I guess, the economy to be able to sustain itself. Like you need like the IT computer technicians to make sure the matrix can can sustain itself. I think that's the architect, right? Isn't that the architect in the Matrix? But he's like, he, but he's not a person, right? He was, he was like a. No, program. you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I never really got that. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, but you're saying that eventually, like, the reason you're saying that because of because eventually, that sort of as in the Philip K. Dick book, people will sort of, you know, decide it's more satisfying to just play games and just like sort of live a different life through virtual reality or whatever it is than actually do anything else, and so. It's almost like the most advanced uh, civilizations or anything would sort of eventually kind of consume themselves that way because yeah, it's not worth exploring absolutely. anymore and, or something. And I always challenge people to, to think, like, if that were true, what kind of situation would you put yourself in? Right. And, you know, you, you'll get, like, the, the answer that's like, you know, I'll, you know, a world where there's no pain or, you know, I'll just be having sex all the time or I'll just be doing fun things all the time. And I... I like I try to push on people and say like don't you think that would get incredibly boring if it was just like constant hits of of just like dopamine in your brain uh, all the time there's no there's no pain there's no there's it's just always up there's no down yeah right. you, have, you, you get bored very quickly it's yeah, a very so- common sci-fi setup like exactly what you're explaining it's like you have that that group of people who are absorbed in this one aspect right whether it's like plugged in and you have the people who are not plugged in right and like that's a conflict because the people who are running it want everyone to be plugged in they don't want any naysayers i mean you're talking about matrix um uh what's uh uh, what's the one with uh the the recent one with tom cruise um and his like clones oh you mean uh uh, live, die, repeat, or whatever it's called. No, the, um, no, there was another one. Uh, no, previous. Uh, I'm having a brain fart right now. It's yeah. God. I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure I like that movie. Or I like the concept. Um, Wait, what yeah. movie's that? No, that's yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out. I can't. Uh, I'm sitting in front of a computer screen, though. We'll figure that out. Anyways, you know, yeah, you I'll have that kind of natural schism, in, and this is a very this is and this is actually, in my opinion, this is a that's oblivion. a con- oblivion. Thank you. Oblivion. Oh, right. Um, this is a concept, this is a construct, you know, of fiction in general, but with science fiction, you can do it very naturally because you can follow this concept of people being plugged in and isolated via technology and then people being unplugged. You know, that's kind of a very natural way to set up a story. And if you do it right, you can kind of develop some relationships out of that and make a good, you know, fiction story with characters. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because it getting it's you know whether we run out of resources or whatever happens to this planet and this world, 
you know, people are going to have to almost change a lot about what they do because from a psychological perspective, it seems like people are very selfish and all they want to really want to do is, is play, you know, play Farmville and play clash of clans and, and do nothing and, and be on social media, but to actually advance past the state and, and go, you know, uh, on a trip spanning 10 generations, it seems as though people are going to have to make sacrifices. So, would you guys? So I'm going to pose a question to you guys. Would you be part of the unplugged? You know, the people who are like being hunted, and you don't have that. You don't have that that everyone else has, but you have like the underground people around with you. Would Would you do that? Man, I don't know. That's <laughs> hard. Well, like, it's sort of the you know the people in the cave myth, right? It's like you know, is it better to see the light or just be stuck in the cave but not know? Is ignorance bliss and and that kind of thing and, yeah. and those kind of questions? I think yeah. my nature is is to be the person that's rebelling and trying to trying to rip the mask uh, yeah. off of everyone else. Yeah, um, but at the same time, I, I like I feel myself exploring and and trying to like push forward these different kinds of technologies that would lead like inevitably lead to plugging yourself in whether it's yeah, like you're building skynet basically you are yes <laughs> yeah uh, or, or or like uh did you guys did you guys ever follow up battlestar galactica and they had that that follow on caprica right where where you were plugged into this this network but it's kind of more of the the kind of hacker story where you have like the subculture still within the network where you have all the freedom and you're kind of you know, being a misfit in there. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the way. I don't know. It's it, I, I love situations and sci-fi kind of constructs like that because they can get so crazy. Well, I, I think it just depends. I mean, I think for the in a small part, you have people who who go unplugged for a while. You know, you have like yeah. um, you know unplugged weekends or or times where you're just not, you just don't have anything connected to you, and you go on a hike or you go on a little uh, mini thing and I, th- I think that sort of subculture will will continue and i hope that you know people having actual conversations like this or people actually having uh you know things that just aren't <laughs> as long as communication can advance beyond just people just being awful to each other in like the comment section of a website <laughs> i think that's really inevitably um i think there, there was one sci-fi thing that you liked where it was talking about was it like an antimatter catapult or what what are some of the concepts that you see from a technology standpoint in uh works of sci-fi that you think could actually help uh further us like the the space elevator uh what were some of the things that we were talking about i think when we last had had drinks yeah yeah i think one of my favorites was is um i think it was arthur c clark uh i don't know where you know he kind of integrated this into into a story you had this catapult basically or more like a rail gun are you guys familiar with the rail gun uh, i've seen i am <laughs> okay. yeah no, i saw the rail gun video that was pretty oh, okay ridiculous. cool rail guns are awesome right and rail guns like if you have enough energy you can you can reach ridiculous velocities and you know eventually hit like the escape velocity of the planet that you're on um so the problem is always g-forces Right, like if you want to send humans on any type of catapulting device, you're just going to liquefy them. Right, it, it, it's like there's, there's no reason sending like just dead bodies. Right, so um, so one of the one a cool concept was using water or heavy water or some sort of other um, uh, kind of uh, some sort of padding within a large railgun system to basically create like a uh, uh, either a suborbital or up to low Earth orbit. Um, launching system that was pretty repeatable because you didn't really need any fuel 
It was just kind of build a big rail gun along the side of a mountain, um, put people inside of this device that was filled with, with water um, surrounding it, kind of absorbing all the propulsive kind of G-force forces, right? And, uh, and you could almost, I mean, we're talking about like, uh, you know, filling one up with like 30 people and just like lobbing them over uh, to uh, like across the water and doing like a 45 minute uh, travel time from LA to Tokyo, right? Or sending <laughs> sending people up to low Earth orbit in the space station. You basically have like a, uh, you'd have to think about how to catch them once they're in orbit. But um, so so just the idea of uh, of shooting people in without uh, a key aspect of that is removing the propellant. Okay, like if you can if you can create force and not have to like waste propellant, you have to make rocket fuel or something that'll explode. That's actually a pretty key concept. And a lot of the uh, so a lot of sci-fi stories will talk about catapult systems or railgun systems. I really I really dig that. That's I think that's something that's very doable. Right? Yeah. Could yeah. we uh, could we talk a little bit about like what your day to day work is like? Um, and you don't have to like go into too many specifics, but just kind of like. Like what do you what do you do on like a, a general like day? Yeah, um, so so you know a lot of what I do is uh, so there's like R and D elements, right? So some internal research and development work that we'll do. We're always trying to kind of push our own uh, technological envelopes, um, making things cheaper and uh, making things lighter, so that when we strap them onto our satellites or our spacecraft or whatever technology we're working on, you know, we can get more bang for our buck um, or better performance. Right? Those are like kind of the key key aspects. Um, but I also do, I do a lot of very classic kind of project management work. You know, um, right. making sure that costs and labor are kind of like in you know in in where they need to be. I have I work with engineers. Um, I, I I work with a a laboratory that we have on our site in El Segundo that can replicate the um, the, the geosynchronous electron space environment. Actually, it's pretty cool. So you put like a piece of technology in there, right? Like a little sample of something. You suck out all the air, right? You simulate the vacuum of space, and then we have these electron sources we can turn in, turn on, and bombard everything with all these crazy electron environments. And then we have it all wired up, and we kind of watch the device fail or perform, or or like lights up and sparks like a fireworks show, right? So. Uh, so you know, a lot of times we have tests and and projects. So what I may do is I I might come in, I start in the morning, you know, I catch up on emails, right, usual stuff. Um, I uh, I might be working on three or four different projects at a time. So I have to kind of gauge: Am I going to be like in the lab helping uh, helping some experiments, right, helping them t- troubleshoot some issues they're having, or I might be going over to the program office and working with some of the higher up engineers, uh, maybe the chief engineer. Uh, troubleshooting some some problems they're having, either something on orbit or something uh, something that they're trying to install and it's not quite working. So a lot of what I deal with is troubleshooting like that, right? It's kind of like you get a phone call, oh crap, like this isn't working, or um, we need your opinion over here in this building. Like, can you make it two o'clock? And you're like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do it. And you run over there, provide some expertise, um, opinions if you can, and then kind of move back to the projects that that I have working on a kind of hourly basis. So, yeah, yeah, that's cool. How much time is spent on? It seems like all the fun stuff. Well, I'm not saying all the fun stuff, but all like the like you guys have uh, like coffee breaks where people uh, 
just like talk about you know how to save the earth from an asteroid or is all like the big stuff happen like at drinks later and when things are or is there any time that you think people spend maybe not in your in your exact field to sort of like large-scale questions like that no, it's uh, it really depends. Um, our organizations and big big aerospace companies are very diverse, right? So you have a you have a mixture of people that you know from baby boomers to millennials, and you get a lot of really interesting concepts that come up. So we try. So everyone works really hard, right? Like in in our com- in companies like ours, you have to you have to be really on on the ball, right? Because the failures are are just really really expensive and can just set you back like months and months. Um, so, you know, we try to we try to really be in work mode, right? But there's something to be said about having a good culture, being creative. You know, when when there's like when we want to take a nice big lunch break and we we go and we talk about talk about space news. We always try to stay on top of things that are happening in science, just in pop culture, even right. It's always good to be kind of plugged in, right? I, personally, it keeps me grounded, right? When I can talk about some of the pop culture stuff in technology or not, right? Just to keep you know understand there's a there's another world out there right and um everything that we're doing you know to kind of advanced satellite technology and telecommunications is related in a way so we have to, we have to know what's happening with the latest cell phones and we have to understand what's going on with all the all this growing technology because it might it might come to, you know it might come to our doorstep one day uh in the form of a contract or in form of some related technology that we have to deal with. So, so it's easy to be in the little box, you know, and kind of have your little thing and that's it, right? But uh, I, I like to surround myself with people who, who are otherwise. Huh. Um, I mean, do you guys ever have to uh, – so I'm like a software designer. Do, do you guys – like what, what is that culture like? Are you guys, um, for the most part, like outsourcing to, to contractors that are doing that? Do you have your own – uh, set of developers like are they relying on like much open source technology? Uh, that's so. So there's a couple different um, answers to that. In that we have like a ground and software group, right? So they like own the software on the the vehicles and also on like the ground systems, right? Okay. So so they you know they they are kind of traditionally run like like a software like a software group in terms of development, um, and uh, oftentimes they have the really I don't know you know some of our some of our customers and a lot of the other companies I mean there's just all different types of software and of, of operating systems and it's not just like Mac or Windows or like Linux right it's 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 like running things on certain brands of Blade servers and crazy. HP or Sun systems, right? Mm-hmm. So we, so they, they have to keep their software up to date on like fifteen or eighteen different flavors of of uh, of systems. Yeah. Um, and then personally, like every group and kind of work cell has its own tool set, right? So I might have a, a set of tools that I've developed in various more le- less like traditional, you know, C C sharp or like C sharp or Java, more in like. MATLAB or uh, MathCAD, some of the stuff that's more geared towards calculating physical uh, things, right? Even though you can do both, right? Um, and I might have a tool suite that I use for calculating some of my uh, some of the things that I need for experiments, and we try to maintain it. Everyone tries to kind of maintain their tool sets as much as possible, and in certain cases, your tool set might grow to the point that multiple people are using it, and then you kind of bring some people in and you work on uh, you work on keeping the quality up. But it's it's always difficult. Um, to keep like your 
to keep your tools up to date if it's not you know kind of funded as its own project or program so it is actually something that we struggle with often is keeping the quality um, of code up so you don't just have spaghetti code uh, that's passed through different hands and does different things so what's the culture like in terms of you mentioned you know because we talk about on this podcast that it's you know about sort of young you know millennials and and people who think that like millennials don't do anything like what's the what's the culture of like what percentage of like your department like are you in charge you like second in command are there a lot of people who are older than you like what's that like Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still very very young in the uh, in the organization, um, and th- there's not as much of a split between millennials and otherwise, in uh, uh, kind of like looking down at millennials. In fact, I think that a lot of us who are coming in new into this industry are uh, are very much looked at being able to do a lot more for a lot less cost, right? Being able to really sub-optimize a lot of things and, and manage manage a lot of different type of projects. So so there's there seems to be a pretty positive outlook to the kind of current supply of engineers and, and young people. Um, but, you know, I probably have, there's a lot of layers of, of management, right? It's a very large company. I think Boeing has 180,000 employees worldwide, right? So it's like, you're going to have a lot of layers when you have a company like that. So it comes down to your site and your local work groups to really keep things interesting so yeah without getting into too much detail that's kind of that's kind of the idea for sure uh and what do you think what's a big project like without again like saying too much but like what is there anything like that's like this year that you're really excited about that uh you can discuss or uh let me think so we let's see we started off the year right um if you check your your uh, satellite uh, satcom industry headlines, which I know you both probably subscribe to, you know, yeah. to those. Uh, you know, we just land, landed a, a contract recently for a uh, uh, for a, a, a satellite that's going to distribute, you know, really uh, uh, really high throughput uh, bandwidth to certain areas of the world. Um, so whenever we get a new contract, a nice big contract, it's nice to, uh, it's a breath of fresh air to start the year off right like that. So I'm excited to kind of start the year off with some good momentum. Um, we have, let's see, uh, we just rolled out last year, or maybe it was the end of 2013, this, this kind of all-electric satellite, right, that we are able to launch on the top of a rocket, but but one on top of each other, like stacked, right? And so you can find these really cool press releases if you if you search online for like the Boeing All Electric satellite, where they have these two satellites kind of folded up, not not quite deployed yet, and they're stacked on top of each other. And we had to basically test them all like that because they're going to be strapped on top of this rocket, and it's going to go up. They're going to separate, and then they're each going to have to go to like a different orbital spot. So all that's going to happen this year. They're going to launch, and they're going to. You know, we're gonna we're gonna watch them. Actually, you know, no one's actually done this, so it's so that's pre- that's really exciting to kind of see them execute on this concept. Um, so so that's that's kind of that's kind of a big thing right now. Let's see of, of stuff stuff I can talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, just how you would actually would do that is it seems massively complicated to me. <laughs> it just oh. is like beyond beyond the scope of of what I can comprehend. <laughs> The testing regiment for something like that is just insane. I mean, you're testing acoustic, you're testing, uh, you're testing these satellites, and just in general, but just stacked. You're testing them in an acoustic environment, right? Because the the, the rocket 
is so loud, right? It's like 140 decibels, right? So it's like 14 orders of magnitude louder than like what we're saying right now, like what you're getting in your headphones. Um, and, and so we test them in these crazy facilities that can simulate like rocket launches. And then we shake them. We put them on a vibe table, right? And we, we put them all through all these different vibration regimens. And they just, they get shook. They get just shook to hell, but they survive, right? And they, I mean, they're just really engineered really well. And so just, you know, the testing regimen we put them through has, is, is crazy. So watching them actually kind of execute and watching it go up and operate, it's just, it's such a, it's a very exciting thing. So we'll have, we'll have a couple of those this year. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I know we're, we're kind of like, we're about an hour on oh, uh, yeah. time right now, but I, I feel like we'd be remiss not to talk about Interstellar. <laughs> oh, yes, sure. Um. I mean, I, I kind of started off. Well, I I saw it on IMAX, and um, which actually I don't recommend. It was, it was just like this movie was just on my face. Uh, I would have liked to sat back a little bit, um, but I just thought it was cramming a lot of ideas into a very mainstream movie, and that I thought that if if you didn't have any kind of like background or understanding of like uh, of like quantum physics. Or, or just have, has never just watched uh, like Carl Sagan, you'd be completely lost. Like, well, did and, you get that you, impression? Well, it's tough because I feel like I don't know if uh, <laughs> I mean Paul obviously has a, has a has a background in this uh, much more than we do. Uh, I have watched lots of uh, YouTube videos of Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I <laughs> have a general understanding of a lot of the concepts. So I don't know if we're exactly the audience to answer that question. Well, but I mean, uh, but specifically, what I'm talking about is the part, and like I'll, I don't really care about spoilers. The the part <coughs> where he's in the black hole, right? And he's right. in this like sort of four dimensional room. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's... Well, yeah, but that's just totally theoretical at that point. I mean, that's just... But the thing is, I at least have something to anchor myself to. And what I'm thinking about is that Carl Sagan episode where he's like, here, let's look at Flatland. And, you know, if, if there were a three-dimensional object that came into Flatland, it would be so different and out of the experience of all the flat people. So it's kind of a nod to him talking about, like, the idea of a four-dimensional terrasect, like a, a hypercube. And Matthew McConaughey is in the hypercube. Right, and his entire life has sort of been transmogrified around to represent that four-dimensional subspace. Yeah, but, like, what was anyone... Like, if you've never seen that video, what did anyone else think was going on in that situation? Yeah, I, I don't know. You really have to... That was a major uh, separation in the story where, at that point on, you couldn't kind of follow along the same pretty, like, quasi-physical, like, good explanation... Uh, uh, track record they had in the movie up to that point. At that point, it's it is like it, it turns kind of into fantasy, right? Yeah. I mean, I I applaud that they attempted. Yeah. To 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 do that scene. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I was a huge fan of the movie, um, and I'll get to that in, in a second. But I was a huge fan of the movie because, to me, uh, you know, although I sort of feel like I. If I if I saw like gravity as like a theme park ride, like you're just on this ride for this whole thing, and it's sort of, you know, it, it's this amazing visual experience. I thought Interstellar. I liked it a lot more because just the concepts of of love and self across time and space, and like and just really hardcore concepts about what it means to be human. I thought were were you know 
really explored. And, you know, not maybe fully, but I, I just thought that the ambition of trying to do that movie was, was really impressive. Um, what did, uh, how long did, were you able to watch it, Paul? And, and uh, what, what, did you, what did you think overall? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I'll, I'll say that right up, right up front. You know, I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoy movies and, and writers and, and producers and, and all of that who, who really attempt to, to put a very good effort into the visualization and the explanation of the science. Okay, like we're, we're, I, 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 we have to understand that we're not, we're not watching like a technical video. Right. I mean, we're not watching it to learn the exact scientific details of it. But that being said, there's definitely a effort these days to provide a little more uh, provide a little more clarity and accuracy in the portrayal, like a little more. Uh, what's, what's a good way to put it? It's, it's kind of like um, uh, a little more uh, context. OK, it's, it's the same I, I've related it in the past where the same thing is like a, a child drawing crayons on a piece of paper versus like an artist that uses crayons and has this like beautiful or maybe it's actually kind of like a line drawing piece that looks really simple, but it has like years of context built into it. And and there's there's an exact, you know, a story and like a reason and like emotion attached to it. OK, that that's what kind of separates like art from from not art, in my opinion. That's a whole other, other you know, conversation. But but the difference, the difference between like having Armageddon, right, kind of fly through asteroid belts and and they had just have like no regard for trying to portray anything. Right. But it's still, you know, got explosions and, and romance, romantic interests and all of that. The difference between like, that, Ar- Armageddon is a great movie. Let's it, not, does, you let mean me, it wasn't me, a documentary? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me let me put that. The Ar- Although they, they do sling movie. they do slingshot around the moon in that movie to get to, to harness uh, to get to go behind the asteroid. No, I, I know you're talking about it. They do. So. No, that absolutely. But but there's Wait, but are there's you saying like, the plan? Are you saying the plan to deflect asteroids is not? send Bruce Willis to the asteroid to, with oil drillers? Is, is oil drillers not the plan? I'm, I think that's actually like the third option, right? It's like not, the, you're right. It, it is up there. I know. I it's mean, it's, it's got to be below send astronauts to, to, and then have them learn how to be oil drillers first. Yeah, you know, we couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> next, time, next time that NASA has like kind of a broad a- announcement for for proposals, right? Like kind of a request for proposals phase, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make like a one-page uh, proposal Right for like an asteroid poster for Armageddon. Yeah, it's and it's just going to be the poster, and then it's just going to be send send Bruce Willis. Yeah, and then then just send it in, and it'll just sign my name. The I I don't want to tangent that far, but the (laughs) I I have listened to the commentary. There was a there's a special edition uh, Criterion Armageddon, and it's uh, it's better than the actual movie. It's it's probably better than the actual movie, and it and and there's a and Ben Affleck is just really a jerk on it, and he's amazing. He's just like I don't know what phase of his life he was in, but he's really like he's just doing impressions of people like behind their back, (laughs) and it's just like it's like really bizarre. And at one point. He's like, yeah, I told Michael that this movie was dumb because why, why wouldn't they just train astronauts to drill for oil? Because, like, that makes way more sense. Like, you know, it's like apparently apparently drilling for oil is so difficult that they couldn't train these astronauts. But they can train these 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 blue-collar oil drillers to do all that space stuff. <laughs> and it's and just like, he's, he's just said, like, Michael just looks at me and says, shut the fuck up. <laughs> That was their meeting about it. Yeah, that's on yeah. The, it's, it's on the commentary. Um, there, but yeah, there's, there's something about the intent. It's like the the very intentional purpose of of portraying the science, right? So so when I when I look at an Interstellar and I see just how 
how they really integrated integrated like the concept general relativity, right? Of the, the slowing down or the speeding up time, depending on on what perspective you're in, right? Like I I love that. Like I think they did that really well. I can forget. I can suspend my disbelief and my commentary on their, you know. The, the way that he entered the black hole and didn't get just torn to pieces and actually, you know, went into this hypercube and you can see, you know, his daughter doing all this stuff, right? Like, that's okay because I really enjoyed the scientific aspect of them explaining general relativity. I think they did that very eloquently, yeah. better than others, right? And and it was very pretty too, so. It was sort of, uh, you, you mean like the, and to reference another Nolan movie, but like the Inception time thing where suddenly it's like, you know, in that movie, as you dream in different levels, time is moving at di- on different levels. It was sort of a microcosm. It's almost like that was a warm-up for this movie where, you know, based on where you were relative to the black hole, um, time would just behave differently. Is that is that true about how black holes can affect, uh, obviously, what gravity and, and mass is, right? Or but, but can black holes affect time because time is a dimension? Is that, is that how... how so my understanding with black holes in particular is that like if you I'm not sure if you can actually so, so you can get like bending of light around black holes right so so they definitely affect gravity but it just taking a step back and looking at just just mass in general right at that whole concept of having very massive very massive uh, things that disturb the space-time continuum is very true. It's very much observed, right? Um, in fact, even even on like a very tangible basis, uh, it also goes with how fast you're moving, right? And so, uh, so, so we've found that, um, uh, for example, uh, our uh, satellites in space, if you're not careful, you will actually lose sync with them because they're moving at a speed that's different than us, and so their time is different. Right? Like we've, we've, we're actually able to metal, measure those subtle differences, right? And so now, now you just take that. You start with something tangible like that, and you take that to a much larger concept, which is, which is planets being close or far away from this very large mass, this source of mass, right? And, and then, yeah, I, I think the way that they showed it was very eloquent in, uh, you know, maybe sitting down with, like, you know, a piece of paper and doing, like, a very quick calculation. That's probably not enough. No, you know, it's like they, they would probably have to have much more right doing doing the old cocktail napkin uh, wormhole yeah. display yeah um, yeah exactly or or well, my, my favorite is also the the homage to like event horizon where they take the piece of paper and they fold it in half and poke a right. pencil through right like I, well, that's, it's not the worst analogy though i feel no, it's like not it's not at all yeah. uh in movies you're always dealt with like the whole notion of show don't tell and it's always like yeah. you there's a lot of like I call them like exposition bombs, where like it's like suddenly the scene where we need to explain everything. But I feel like I yeah, feel there's. There, I mean, they did that in Raiders of the Lost Ark pretty well. I mean, that's I, right. I remember one time you, we were watching that, and you pointed that out, and they're like, "Why is he in a classroom right now, uh, t- telling this to a bunch of guys?" It's like it's, <laughs> it's not it's not for it has it adds really nothing to his character. Really, it's it's just to tell you the audience what's yeah. going on. Yeah, it's like in the in the book. Uh, there's a book called Save the Cat, which is about screenwriting, and it's uh, it's kind of cliche, but there's still like it's kind of a not like it's a joke because it's like it's it's sort of this Bible that people kind of reference, but it's kind of funny because uh, it, it's sort of not paint by numbers, but anyway, it's it's a set of rules, and, and there's a rule called uh, uh, called Pope in the Pool that they, they talk about, and it's like if you're gonna have a scene where you have to explain stuff, 
have have the Pope swimming in the pool because that's like it's like well that's something that wouldn't happen or you know you know it's like you go to the Vatican to explain some exposition about some conspiracy or something well have the Pope swimming laps because that's something that's interesting that's happening while while you're getting that information. Um, <laughs> oh, so like don't make the exposition just so dry and like obvious. Like, right. Have there be something else that's going on. Right, and I've, Raiders I've heard he's it, talking I, about the, you know, it's like, haven't you guys gone to Bible school? Like, it's kind of a fun scene about talking about the Ark and stuff. But Don't, don't they have to deal with that? I heard that in the context of, of like, uh, like in sitcoms or something where they have to, like, lay pipe for, like, a joke or something, right, as, as what they would put it, where if someone says something and then a character turns and they go, well... I mean, you're my sister and a lawyer. Uh, what do you think? And it's like, obviously, oh, right. <laughs> you know, like you're not going, you're not going to say that to the person, but for the audience that's watching, right, you have to kind of set it up in like yeah, a, no, a it's, smooth way. It's, it's definitely related to that. Um, yeah. But I feel like in Interstellar, the, you know, there's so many scenes where, like, they just sort of went with it because there's yeah. so many scenes where it's like everyone, um, and I love how they didn't have any training. It's funny, like in, Ar- in Armageddon, like they actually, they actually don't go into space in Armageddon until minute, I think it's minute, uh, an hour, 12. I think it's an hour, 12 into the movie. So they don't wow. go into space until like 70 minutes into the movie because there's so much training and there's so much development. Whereas Interstellar like freed itself up, although the movie's still like four hours long, it freed itself up to do some of the higher concept stuff because they just went, he was already a pilot, you know, and he's like, let's just go into space right away. And, yeah. and, uh, I really like that montage of him driving away with the you know the the, the countdown and like running away from his his daughter and stuff as she runs out. Uh, but yeah, I feel like they they freed themselves up to talk about things that were theoretical and um, it, it's fascinating that your that your satellites are on a different time than than us. So like they they slip by like how much like a like like an atomic clock could measure it or how much of a slip is it. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact amount, but it's something that we have to take into account, like with uh, uh, GPS satellites, for example. Yeah, so, I've so heard we, of this. yeah, so so we make we we make we made a lot of the GPS satellites, and something that goes into the design of the of the kind of operation of them is it's really they're really just big flying clocks out there, and you're always kind of just comparing the time. Uh, the, the distance you are and, and, and the passage of time and, and, and you'll get an exact kind of vector of where you're moving. Um, so they have to make sure that their time is very, very, very uh, exact. And so they are always, they're always kind of checking their clocks with another source, right, to make sure because they're moving very quickly and that might not be the case. They might be passing at a different time it, due to the theories of general relativity. Yeah, I I think what Interstellar did was sort of there's a lot of things where people just take for granted where, you know, I think people understand uh, different forms of matter and and that kind of thing. But thinking of of time as a tangible thing, right, as something that can be uh, it's malleable. It's it's I think that is something that movie did really well because in so many science fiction, like it's not grandfather theory because grandfather theory is if you go back in time and kill your grandfather, like you won't exist in that paradox. But there's something about you being older than your, you being, yeah, there's something about you being, or you you being a grandfather and your children being older than you if you left, which is sort of what Interstellar is a little bit, you know, I think. I mean, have you ever read uh, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut? Yes. The first time I started thinking about this problem was when he, like, I think it's in, like, the first line of the book. It's just like, this is a story about a man who became unstuck in time. Right. And right. it's just about, like, the main character who 
just he's living his life and it's not clear whether he's alive or dead or like what time period this story is being told but he's just experiencing each point in his life just as if he's just moving across the room mm-hmm. like so if he just wants to be and he doesn't change anything it's just like he's kind of like uh uh, a watcher of his own life, so he, he might be in like in World War II during like the firebombing of Dresden, which was a really bad thing to be a part of. Yeah. And then there's like a part where he's just like he's uh, hanging out with his son and, and his wife. There's a part where he's giving a speech about how he's about to be assassinated, and then he right after the speech he, he's assassinated, <laughs> and he's just talking about well like you know when I when I die it's really just a purple hum forever. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of move in between these different points of life and he doesn't really change anything he just kind of like experiences it all at once and and like I, I, I just thought that was like that blew my mind like that concept changed everything about like the way I think about life and and uh, and time yeah I, I really like how we're we're, ta- we're doing more of that type of time travel in in I think we're doing more in kind of pop culture. We're talking about it more because uh, typically we would always invoke the idea of time travel, like the Back to the Future, or yeah. like the grand, like the grandfather model, like you're saying, right? Like very simple and linear. You go back, it changes. If you change something, it's different, right? Now we're talking more about adding another dimension in there and talking about time, you know, either existing all at once, which can be almost like a quantum entanglement kind of theory, um, or 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 speeding up or slowing down. Right, depending on point of view, bringing in that relativity instead of just kind of a linear forward and backward. Well, it's almost like I think we've established now that you cannot because time is is an actual thing. It's like uh, you know, uh, it, it you you can go back in time. Like you can, I think you can go forward, right? Because if you go if you go faster than the speed of light, theoretically, but you cannot go back because unless unless there's some sort of aberration in time. But the way that time is constructed, going back in time would either create a parallel universe of those events on a different timeline or it just isn't possible isn't isn't is that sort of am i completely butchering that idea i i would understand yeah i would understand it like that in that you 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 know you have this this kind of like time cone of light and time that's kind of always going forward right and you can move within it which is you know uh, which is to kind of speed up or slow down the passage of time. But as I've always kind of read it and understand it, if I were to try to explain it, is that in order to actually go backwards, you would need, I mean, there would have to be something like a construct, like a wormhole or, um, or a, uh, an instance of, of, of quantum entanglement where, where there's like a piece of time that is connected in different areas that you can move fluidly back and forth between. Right, um, uh, as well as even the, the multi, the multi-parallel, uh, the, the parallel universe theory, where there's an instance of two universes of the same, uh, kind of in the of the same stuff happening, but just kind of offset by a time offset, right? Because if you think of there's an infinite amount of, of universes that can exist, and you know, then why isn't there a universe out there that's existing right now that's actually about five minutes behind where we are right now? Right, and if those were connected in somehow by you could travel there, then you could would, travel between it. To and you, so, you would think that oh, I just went back in time when really you just went somewhere else that's just a little different. Yeah, and you're still moving forward, and technically your time is kind of still moving forward, but you just yeah, you kind of made a lateral movement into something else, right? So that's it's like, it's like switching subways. It's like switching. Yeah. It's like just getting on a different track, but but ultimately you're not. You're still not. 
you know, it's like it sort of goes back to the inception constant, right? Like if, if I was in this reality in the, or sorry, in this, in this universe and I went to the universe that was five minutes behind and I changed something, I still wouldn't be changing that thing in the universe where I originated from. Right. Correct. Technically. Technically. So it seems like it's very increasingly difficult to go back in time in the actual universe in which you exist in without, you know, You'd also have to destroy uh, the, the other version you. of you, yeah. Uh, yes. that's, a, that's a favorite sci-fi <laughs> construct is, the, yes. is, uh, is like how – I love, I love parallel universe theory a lot. That's, it's too big. That and quantum entanglement are, is too big a concept for right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, that's all I, – I, I liked how Interstellar tried to go after a lot of those questions. Uh, I think a lot of people – there's, there's like too much hate. I think like it's like it was, which kind of sucks because I think people like the movie, but overall, you know, I think people a lot of times just want stuff sewn up neatly, like tied up in a bow, and and sometimes you know I like stuff that can ask questions that go beyond that. So yeah, people, people, I think people get upset when you don't when you you kind of don't give enough to explain all the technical details of of what's going on. You you let you leave that to someone. Uh, to kind of fill in for themselves, right? But you need to do that if you want to build in other aspects of the story, like characters and, and you know, the kind of, uh, you know, it's got the whole topic of, of saving the Earth and all that. You can't spend so much time developing technical details. You need to give just enough so that it's vague enough that they can suspend disbelief, root it onto something that's actually physical, right? And then, and then let, them, let them kind of go, right? Because it'll just get too dry if you start making it kind of very hard science fiction. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on, and uh, and lots lots to think about. Uh, hopefully, hopefully not too much completely over our heads. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm gonna have I an know. existential crisis for the rest of the day. <laughs> Matt, Matt will just want to go. Up. Matt will just want to go in a float tank and just think about all this stuff. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, I'll be thinking about uh, you know uh, the challenges of of keeping satellites up when and what could go wrong i'm curious to hear other uh issues that can go wrong uh if you uh if you join us again about lot, just like, a lot of fun ways yeah so on mercenary we talk about words of the trade like uh conflict vacuum and and uh i forget uh, wood shedding i forget some of them but what bike, uh, bike shedding bike shedding right um and paul what's what's yours in the rocket field okay so well so there's one actually there's i'll i'll, I'll do I'll do two right now, right? Because I because I like them both, and one of them, well, okay. So the first one is uh, is Space Chicken. You guys ever heard of Space Chicken? Nope. Okay. Okay. So uh, so this is actually kind of like a manufacturing, like in a in a factory issue where you know you'll have multiple programs or projects uh, occurring at once, but you know in in an environment like ours, like we talked about, there's a lot of very harsh environments, and so there's a lot of testing involved, and you might have like one one test facility at a time and there's scheduling issues involved so so what happens is you'll often hear people in in our business talk about playing space chicken right where you're 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 trying to see who's going to give up their spot of priority first and who's going to assume that their project is going to slip okay so you might have a project or a manufacturing schedule and you know that your thing's not going to be ready on that first day right but you're not going to admit it because if you, because you're playing chicken with everyone else, who also needs that? And then, and then there's there's the whole like space element. It's just the fact that we, we make satellites. That's the only element. It's basically just playing chicken with like space testing 
you know, facilities. Well, yeah, yeah, but you said there's high stakes, so it's almost like, you know, I think every industry has a, has a variation of this. But yes, yes. It's, it's I, like, you mean Space Chicken is not firing a rocket at another <laughs> Russian rocket? And then... Unfortunately, no, which, which is what I was hoping when I originally heard it. Um, and then actually, I, there's a good one uh, that we've used a couple times in, in, in some of the wor- work I do, which is testing. Okay, so you're trying to qualify something in a harsh environment. You're trying, you're, you're trying to do something. You're trying to test its performance and every once in a while we'll have a catastrophic pass okay and and so typically what you have is is like a, in in aerospace you have a, a, a Cato which is like a catastrophic failure like the rocket blows up right yeah. or something but sometimes what happens is you'll have a catastrophic pass and that's where it's like your the thing you were doing it actually exploded but you look at the data and you realize it, pour, it performed exactly as it should have given the constraints you were looking for and it's pass. <laughs> and so we had this one situation where we're, we're testing the performance of something, and and it, it you know it was performing really well, but it turned out that the the thing basically like exploded, right? Like it melted. Right? It, something happened, and it just was taken way beyond the the environments it should have been. Okay, um, but it actually met what we were looking for, and so it was deemed a catastrophic pass. Catastrophic pass. And so like it's that. like the the unintended. You know, pass. Yeah, I, I like I like that a lot. Yeah. I'm going to call all of my projects from now on catastrophic <laughs> passes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like was there is, is there ever a true victory? It's like the um, right. I, I feel like I don't know. I don't know if if we deal with that. I don't know. It's like success and failure are, are so tied to the economic things in in like the film industry. Whether well. I don't know. I think a lot of times people, a lot of times movies, it's like you could, it's so funny. Like in, uh, in the film industry, you can have a hit movie that fails. You know, it's like, um, I forget the example, but it was like, there, there was a movie that, uh, that did what we call like a multiple, which means it came out and it did like 20 million bucks. And then it did, yeah, maybe it finished with 65. So that, that's a, that's a decent multiple. Cause that's 3.1 of, of, of the original 20 opening. And somebody, I was talking to somebody, and they were saying, you know, yeah, the movie did big. It, you know, it was, uh, you know, proportionally, it was a big hit for them. Of course, you know, they're not going to, of course, you know, they, they'll lose money on the movie. It's like, so of course, the equity guys who put up the money are going to lose, but it, it was still a hit. <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. like, it's, it's like that kind of thing where it, it's like the movie, for all intents and, and purposes, you, you accomplished what you wanted, which is you released it, it, it sort of worked, people saw it, and it was well-received, and it didn't just die on impact. Yeah. But it was, it's still, it's like the people, you're not, they're not getting all their equity out of the movie. You know, it's like there's still, it still isn't profitable. So I feel like there's a lot of, maybe there's a lot of catastrophic passes. Or would, maybe would, it's... Would there be, would like a, something that turns into like a cult following maybe be a catastrophic pass? Like, like I think of... Uh, like an office space or something? Yeah, like or, or like Firefly, right? Where it just it just like never really performed when it was on air, right? But then when it like failed, that's when all of a sudden it became a huge hit and a huge following, right? So I, I don't know. Yeah, no, potentially. I wonder what's the inverse of catastrophic fail? It's like near. It's like near miss. Like you, it's like semi-successful. <laughs> oh, sorry, ca- catastrophic pass. It's like it's like semi-successful failure. I feel like. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Actually, I don't know. That's maybe there's point. maybe there's more of that. Yeah, yeah, more of the future. Yeah.